Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. I mean, I mean, really, what the hell? What, what the hell was Jesus trying to teach us? If if Jesus is sitting there performing miracles, thump, thump, I mean, the, the the legacy of Jesus as the performer of miracles, and then he says, well, y'all are going to be doing this too, and, and even more, wouldn't it, w- would it make sense that if you were to pursue the truth with any kind of vigor, with any kind of uh, discipline, that ultimately truth with a capital T would explain the mechanics of miracles. Explain, excuse me, explain the the mechanism, perhaps, of creation. Um, I think we're going to have a delightful conversation tonight. Uh, Tonight's topic is the physics of God. And our guest tonight is Joseph Selby. The Physics of God is the name of uh, his latest book. And that's the topic of the show tonight. So if physics is really, really going to do the heavy lifting of revealing truth with a capital T, it has to, does it have to? Um, I guess at some point it would have to um, encompass everything that has been described as a miracle in all of our in all of our history, of of all of humanity, not only in the uh, the, the Christian Bible, but in in the Vedic era, the Vedas and the the Yoga Sutras. Um, physics, it seems like. Um, ultimately has to encompass everything that we witness. Like, I mean, it's really easy. Gravity is invisible, but you can't really see. You can't see gravity. You can't see it, but everybody pretty much agrees that gravity is real, even though we can't see it. And then electricity really cleaned our clocks. Electricity sitting there in it. Uh, I worked with the electricity directly with like thirty thousand volt power supplies and million watt transmitters for decades. Elect, we're in a sea of electricity, and yet it eluded our ability to discover it, let alone harness it. And electricity is making this conversation possible. And I suggest the next hoorah 
of discovery is consciousness. Uh, consciousness as a, a fulcrum of effect, if you will. Again, that's um, I'm thoroughly delighted for this conversation tonight. Again, the topic is the physics of God, and our guest tonight is Joseph Selby. The physics of God, unifying quantum physics, consciousness, M-theory, heaven, neuroscience, and transcendence. How cool is that? I think we should get to it because we're going to have plenty to talk about. In his updated edition, The Physics of God describes the intersection of science and religion with colorful, easy-to-understand metaphors, making abstruse subjects within both science and religion easily accessible to the layman. No math, no dogma. This intriguing book pulls back the curtain on the light show illusion, I like that phrase, that we call matter, connects string theory's hidden brain worlds to religion, religion's transcendent heavens, reveals the scientific secret of life and immortality. Quantum biology's startling discovery that the human body is continuously entangled and demonstrates the miracle-making power of our minds to affect instantaneous psychological changes. I think we should get right to it. Join me in welcoming Joseph to the show. Joseph, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Uh, it was a, a, a fascinating uh, intro to the program as well. I really appreciated uh, how you spun out that picture of, of your experience and the realities around us. <laughs> uh, reality, that's a, that's a sticky one right there. I mean, um, so You've taken on the task. I mean, um, this is an updated edition of a book called The Physics of God. I mean, physics really denotes that Western academic uh, discipline, that that scientific method, uh, not to be confused with the rhythm method, which is a birth control uh, strategy, but <laughs> but... The scientific method, by its very nature, I mean, you got to prove, you have to quantify, you have to get a measuring stick. And uh, jeepers, God is God is just this big ass multi-dimensional. Ugh, I don't even want to go there. Uh, how did how did you come around to writing a book about the physics of God? Well, I'd always been fascinated by uh, books like, and especially I think for many people who are interested in this subject, uh, The Tao of Physics by Fitchoff Capra, and then he was followed by many others who wrote books. There's now, it's a genre with hundreds of books in it, and I've been an avid follower of it since ever since uh, Capra's book. I also personally have a uh, a spiritual life uh, that is centered on 
meditation. I've been meditating now for almost 50 years. So I have personally been able to, you know, actually feel the things that spiritual teachings indicate that we can feel. I have felt that my body becomes, um, you know, almost not there as I meditate and, and a greater, much more powerful, much more energetic reality becomes uh, much more real to me in those moments. So uh, I come to the book with the conviction that the testimony of saints and sages and near-death experiencers uh, are true. Uh, they they can't prove them, as you said, in the way that a physicist has to set out to uh, prove things about the way matter works. But to me, there is no doubt that they are true. So I tried to you know bridge this apparent divide between uh, experimental discovery and experiential discovery. And to, to get there, to, to, to come to this conception of there being a physics of God, I had to do two things. One, I had to separate discoveries of science from interpretations of what those discoveries mean. So often when people say, well, science says this, what they're really saying is there's a commonly accepted interpretation of science, of science's discoveries that are often, uh, uh, you know, given to us by scientists. And so I try to make that distinction really clear in the book that the discoveries are open to multiple interpretations. And there's one that's kind of winning the uh, uh, popular appeal, uh, which is called scientific materialism. So there's a, there's a core, but interestingly enough, not a majority, but there's a core of scientists who are scientific materialists. And that fundamental delineation, the line that they, they, they draw, is that they believe there is nothing else than matter and energy. And that all of physics is the exploration of matter, energy, and the interactions between the two. So this belief and it really is a belief system. They've, they've drawn a line. There isn't anything beyond this. That belief system is an interpretation of discoveries that have been made, you know, going way back to the 1600s. But uh, there have always been other interpretations that uh, get less appreciation. Uh, and there are many physicists who when uh, they encountered the what's called quantum weirdness, uh, sort of generally, uh, it, 
they began to see that just matter and energy wasn't enough of an explanation for what was happening in the, in the deep realms that quantum physics was revealing. And one of my favorite quotes is by Heisenberg, who said that the, the first swallow from the glass of science will make you an atheist, but God is waiting for you at the bottom. Nice. And if you go deep enough, if you go deep enough into science and you, you remain open to the possibility that scientific materialism is not uh, considering the complete reality, it has, it has walled itself off into its own limits and, and refuses to even experiment in things that are beyond that conviction. But if you go beyond that sort of walled world of scientific materialism, not only do you find that these physicists like Heisenberg and Bohr and Einstein and many others today, Amit Goswami, uh, they can uh, apply the discoveries of quantum physics and uh, string theory and M-theory to the, a greater reality that supports what the saints and sages are saying. Now, that's, the, that's one thing you have to do. Separate interpretation from discovery. Perfectly legitimate. It's just an opinion of those scientists that there is nothing else besides matter and energy. It's an opinion they hold really strongly. It's an opinion that is currently in the world probably dominant, but it's an opinion. It's not, they want you to think it's a incontrovertible fact. And that right. there is nothing possible other than that. So you gotta separate the discoveries from the interpreters. And then in religion, uh, religion can be very confusing because you have all these major religions of the world that if you make an attempt to uh, compare them and get them to align with each other, uh, it, it's very difficult. And what you're running into there is a, is a similar kind of effect. That is, uh, in most cases, the, the founding savior, the founding uh, incredible way-shower of all of those religions is long dead. And that since their death, theologians and others uh, have interpreted what the Savior, the original Savior, said. And then there's interpretations on interpretations. You have theologians fighting over the meaning of, you know, tiny, minuscule words, uh, you know, concept, not words so much, but uh, parsing it to, to such a fine degree that a, a journey into theology is, uh, is, is not for the faint of heart, uh, especially if you try to do that across multiple religions. But that's exactly the same problem 
uh, as the scientific materialist being one kind of interpreter. You have theologians in every religion who are offering their opinions about reality. But there's another voice in all of religion. Every spiritual tradition, uh, every major spiritual tradition, and many small ones that even necessarily know exist, have people who have become saintly. They've learned to transcend their physical body completely. They've learned to become one with subtle energies that expand them to the infinity. That, uh, and, and, and in that infinity, they discover uh, great joy, great uh, love, great peace. And these are the people that you should listen to, not the theologians who are interpreting the words of men and women long dead, who themselves don't have any spiritual experience. Listen to the, the men and women who have spiritual experience. And when you do that, if you put together what the saints and sages and near-death experiences are saying about direct experience of huge realities beyond matter and energy. And then you compare what they say to the open-minded physicists like Einstein and Bohr and Heisenberg and, and many others. There's an easy congruence between the two. They don't line up like a scientific formula does because they're not scientific formulas that the saints and sages are conveying. They're right. describing in words and concepts and personal experience what they believe that reality to be where physicists rely on mathematics. But even with that, the great physicists also interpret what that mathematics means or what it says about reality. You connect those two, the description of reality that you come to through the painstaking scientific process uh, that goes deep into different realities with um, string theory and quantum physics uh, to the experiences of these saints and sages who have gone deeply into that reality directly, you have this amazing fit. There's what I was thrilled by in my research and putting this together is that I didn't have to stretch the facts. I didn't have to, um, you know, come up with some really obscure theory or formula. I just looked at the central theories of physics interpreted through the eyes of people who didn't limit it to science, uh, to matter and energy. And the core tenets of the saints and sages who directly experience things, and they just fit together like, uh, you know, 
easy easy parts of a a big a, a jigsaw puzzle with big pieces. So that's that's how I got to the book, and that's the starting premise. So all throughout the book, I give equal credibility to what the saints and sages say about reality as I do about what scientists say about reality. Um, but I pretty much ignore the interpretations that come from the scientific materialists. For one, well, I could I could totally understand that because I mean I'm just a, a layman sitting on the 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 side. I can't drink enough Kool Aid to get a PhD. I can't, and. Uh, <laughs> And and just just being the observer on the side of the of the ring, so to speak, the um, uh, the the academic mechanism, the the especially Western academics, like uh, we had uh, Dean Radin, the chief uh, uh, scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, on the show as many times and he talked about the 25 uh, yogas that were taught as part of the uh, the eastern curriculum in india and then the brits showed up and they said well the western world has arrived let's just wipe the slate clean of whatever you've been teaching and we've brought you science huh and, yeah uh, and and the the yogas were demonstrating um, non-linear effects of consciousness in the physical realm, and they were so ignorant to wipe it clean. And and one more thought is, if all you've ever seen is a caterpillar as a geneticist. They label like 80 or 90% of the DNA as junk. So if you look at a caterpillar and you find the DNA of wings, like perhaps butterfly wings, it doesn't make sense to the motive of a caterpillar. But when Western academics say we have genetic experts, I almost blow my beer across the room. It's like wait a minute, time out, stop. If I'm an author, I can open a word processor with a blank page, nothing on it, and I can write the whole flipping book. But what geneticists do is they don't, um, if they were truly expert, you could say, make me uh, a centipede with uh, um, yellow horns and a, a big butt and... Um, Start from scratch. In other words, uh, don't copy and paste from other species, which is what they do. They can't create a single anything by starting from scratch with DNA. They don't know how to fabricate anything from scratch. All they do is they copy and they paste and and from the, from the sidelines that tells me you're not an expert you're you're scratching your head just like everybody else but they sell themselves as these um 
sacred authorities, and I just I don't see that kind of insight to warrant that kind of uh, credentials, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, imagine their uh, surprise and chagrin when the, <laughs> the the geneticists who were so convinced that um, DNA was our fate, that everything in our uh, future, uh, including the level of intelligence we would have, the abilities we might have, the diseases we're likely to catch, uh, the lifespan we're likely to have. They believed all that was written in our DNA. Right. And that um, it was, you know, concrete. But then along came uh, some discoveries out of, um, I believe it was Sweden, that there was the ability that was believed to be absolutely impossible. There was the ability for uh, children to inherit new genetic code from a, a parent whose genetic code earlier in their life uh, did not include that. And epigenetics right. has just blown the doors off this notion that that DNA is our sealed fate. In fact, there are there was one study that said uh, in a three-month span of uh, people they studied, men, I think, especially uh, doing exercises every week. They, you know, they really rigorously uh, brought these men into really good shape over the course of three months. And from the beginning to the end of that three months, 7,000 genes were modified in their DNA. Wow. So DNA is, is just a cookbook full of recipes for proteins. And there, the other thing that happened that, that kind of made geneticists uh, chagrined is that it's only that. There, there are no directions about when to use a certain protein. There's, there's no uh, instructions. You just have 2,000 recipes and each recipe has potentially got multiple, many, many proteins that can be built from a single, different proteins that can be built from a single uh, genetic recipe. So there could be up to 2 million genes, 2 million uh, proteins, excuse me, uh, that can be built from these 2,000 genetic recipes, but nowhere in there. Nowhere in that genetic picture are any instructions about when and why and how to use these proteins. The body does it at an astonishing pace. You create in a, in a single day, all of, all of your cells combined, create sextillion proteins. That's the... 
uh, in the range of the, the number of stars in the universe or grains of sand on a beach. Wow. And your body does that in one day. So genetics especially, I'm glad you brought it up, indicates that there's, there really has to be some subtler mechanism that is deciding and directing how the body uh, creates these proteins and uses it and why. And what the saints and sages tell us is that we have a subtle body. It's called the astral body or the etheric body. And there's support for that notion in M-theory. Uh, M-theory is the most uh, accepted flavor of string theory. And it has, it has many facets to it. But one of them is what's called the holographic principle. And uh, probably most people have run into it, or at least many, many people have run into this notion that our physical universe is a holographic projection. And this comes not from, you know, somebody who who played way too many video games, uh, <laughs> but it actually, it actually comes from M-theory because what M-theory suggests is that there is a vast, deep reality that is both beyond the universe and interpenetrates the universe of high-frequency energy that is way beyond anything we can detect. You know, we, we uh, probably have all seen these long horizontal bars showing the electromagnetic spectrum, and it just stops at ultraviolet. And they say, well, you know, this, this is the lowest, this is the highest, but it's only the highest because we can't detect anything of a higher frequency, it's just beyond the ability of our instruments. And it's so much beyond, uh, it's like a billion times uh, higher frequency than, than even ultraviolet. So this is where the world that M-theory is not just speculating, but they have math that's saying, yes, there really must be, in order for the Earth to be created, in order for the universe to be created, and in order for our world to be perpetually sustained, not just created once and then the creation process goes away and does something else, but perpetually created, which is the way reality is viewed by the saints and sages and many esoteric traditions. In order for the universe to remain here, there must be this continuous projection from this vast realm uh, that M-theory posits that is continuously projecting the physical universe into being. And that means also that every one of us, in terms of our physical body, uh, our physical body is itself a holographic projection. 
and that the uh, all the matter in our body theoretically with holographic thinking could change in an instant it is a projection the projector is not exactly what we think of uh, with the holograms and holographic projections that are in use uh, today but the basic principle is similar that there's a a huge intelligence present in this realm that M-theory posits, often called non-locality. But in that realm, there is order, there is intelligence, there are forms, there are templates for everything. And those templates end up um, being projected and, and projecting us every day and every moment. It's hard to comprehend. Uh, well, but if you think of... It, Go ahead. It's, curi it's curious because um, I shared with you before the show something I've shared on the show many times about when I unexpectedly connected with an immense amount of anger that was suppressed in my psyche. And leading up to that, my body was shutting down. I had digestive tract problems for a decade. I was uh, starting to get ulcers. And my body was pretty much protesting. And I've, I've worked in um, electronics and RF for decades. We have spectrum analyzers and network analyzers and all that crap. And we can see the, the power behind the RF, but we don't have anything to measure how much a human persona has as far as unresolved anger in their psyche. And then that moment I released all that anger, my ulcers vanished. They just disappeared, and my digestive tract problems stopped. And it was what I'm getting at is uh, here's this energy, this uh, emotion, and um, we can't, that we don't have a spectrum analyzer or any kind of a uh, a way to put a measuring stick on what's shoved in our psyche. And uh, when I released that out of my persona, um, I restored an element of health to my persona. And so in um, when we're talking about the uh, non-physical influence over the physical realm, I think that's an example right there of an unmeasurable um, quantity or substance that had a direct and immediate influence on my body. Because if Jesus walks around and heals people, there has to be a mechanism to that. And um, I think that's what your book is, is touching on. Yes, I agree. I agree. I'm glad you kind of took us in that direction. You had, uh, in your intro to the show, you had talked about, you know, how do miracles happen? And one of the things that I like to say to sort of surprise people, but uh, 
it works is just to tell people that they are walking miracles. That although you don't know it, you are constantly creating your body. And you're constantly creating your body in conformance to your convictions about your body. And these are deeply held, uh, inaccessible to the conscious mind convictions that reside in that subtle body, that reside in the, um, the, the, the world of high frequency of M-theory, and that they are continuously uh, forming and reforming and, and, and sustaining what you think you are. And there's a fascinating um, confirmation of this, which you find in the world of multiple personality disorder. So probably most people are familiar with uh, multiple personality disorder. Uh, They are people who uh, have many, many different distinct personalities that come, stay for a while, and go. And uh, multiple personality disorder sufferers can have... You know, typically you hear about three or six, but some have 10, some have 15, some have 25, uh, which boggles the mind. But each personality is indeed uh, distinct. And some power personalities can speak foreign languages that the other personalities can't. Um, some Some of them have, you know, characteristics that are just very different than all the others. But what people don't, by and large, know is that not only do these personalities that come in sort of change the mindset and, you know, present themselves as this new new person, really, um, they also bring with them frequently physiological changes. So there are some personalities have scars that none of the other personalities have. Some personalities have moles that none of the other personalities have. Uh, there was one personality who was a junkie, and whenever his personality came in, uh, there would be needle tracks on his forearm. And when his personality departed, uh, they would go away, just vanish. Uh, there are wow. some personalities that need glasses, and there are personalities, most, you know, a half a dozen personalities that need glasses, but they all need a different prescription. There was one woman who uh, had just a purse full of glasses because she never knew, you know, which personality was going to emerge and, uh, and needed different glasses to see. There are some personalities that literally have different eye color from the other personalities. So this is inexplicable to uh, scientific materialism. Uh, scientific materialists would say, well, it's just, it's just impossible. Instruments must have been off. This kind of thing just can't happen. But these were right. well measured. They, they were in clinical environments. Uh, there was one woman, uh, I believe it was a woman, 
who moved through 10 different personalities in the space of an hour. And when each personality came in, they had an optician there who could measure their eye. And what he found was every one of those 10 eyes was different in a way, either visual acuity or sometimes the curvature of their lens, uh, eye, the pressure of their eyeball, uh, whether they were colorblind. Every one of those 10 personalities was impossibly different from each of the others and really essentially belonged in 10 different bodies. So how does this happen? So the way, that, the way I believe it happens is that each personality comes in with its own set of these deep convictions that I mentioned that constantly are creating our body in, in, in the way we know our body and the way we believe our body to be. But each one of those personalities has a different set of convictions. And the moment, not hours, not days, the moment that new personality comes in, that previous physiological traits of the personality before vanish and new physiological traits uh, appear. Wow, so that, this is a... That, that makes you think, you ahead. know, the, the, the metaphor that came to me was a movie theater where the image on the screen is, quote, reality, or the image on the screen is, quote, our body, where we feel like we have this static body with static conditions. And you're talking about uh, multiple personalities coming in, and it's flashing over. It's like changing the, the film in the projector up in the projector room, the, the screen of the theater, or in other words, our physical body as a projection, has no um, merit towards this ease of its own. It's brought to it from th this this personality construct that are that's flashing in and stepping out with these multiple personality disorders. Wow, that's yeah, fascinating. That's so so the I guess the question would beg, what the hell if we have a single self, if we're if we merely have a single one of us, I i.e. you, i.e. me, i.e. the listener, we're a single personality persona. Where in our psyche, where is the fulcrum, where is the the mechanism of change in our psyche where we can reprogram our physical body if our physical body has no um, merit or motive of its own, but it's rather our, our persona that projects disease? Yes, and I think that is a that is the best question to ask, really is that if we have this power to manifest our body in, in this particular form that we do, that's extraordinary. That, would, that should mean that if we choose to be healthy, we can be healthy. And if we uh, choose you know, any kind of development, positive development, 
we should be able to manifest it. And it is true. But getting at those um, deep convictions that are not accessible to the conscious mind is difficult. So extraordinary experiences can change our convictions. Uh, like your example, your, your life-changing experience of, you know, this, this anger just you, you suddenly knew something you never knew before. You knew that it existed and it, it vanished, but it changed you because your conviction about who you are and what you are was quickly changed. It changed, in a sense, as quickly as a um, multiple personality change. And so your ulcers went away. This, this new personality that you became doesn't have ulcers. So, so so when so when Jesus walked into the leper colony, um, he didn't heal the body; he healed the personality that had the disease within the personality, and not the body itself. So it's almost like he's scrubbing the psychological history of the person to wash away any incongruencies that rippled into the physical realm of their body as disease or disharmony. Yes, and I think that if if we could have, you know, if we could go back in time and witness those um, miracles that are depicted in, in the Bible, that we probably would also notice that the person, his or herself, was elevated, that, that there was a... Uh, um, an ecstasy that came with that healing, that their their being changed along with their body, that that they go together. Uh, but all we all we know is that the you know the leper was healed and the the halt man walked. But I imagine that their lives were changed. That's one of the things that you see with near death experiencers. There's a um, great book, fairly recent book in, a, in the long line of near-death experience books um, by Anita Morjani. And Anita Morjani, uh, the title is interesting too, which is uh, Dying to Be Me. And she became uh, critically ill. She had a serious cancer um, and she went into a coma the doctors, you know, predicted that she would never come out of the coma because she had um, big um, tumors visible all over her body. They described them like lemons all over, bulging out of her skin all over her body. She had open lesions that were bleeding. She had almost no energy. Um, had to be taken to the hospital by an ambulance. She had her near-death experience, and in that near-death experience, um, she basically met her father, who had passed on. And he basically said to her, you know, the, the, the kind of transfer of information that can take place um, in the heavenly planes is different than 
having to verbally talk it out. There, things can come into your mind from the other person telepathically, and understanding can be, uh, you know, holistic. That you get things and you get all the implications of those things. But basically, what her father said is, you've been living in fear all your life. You've been living in fear of doing the wrong thing, and you killed yourself. So when she came out of the coma, to everyone's surprise, um, she knew in her heart of hearts that she was love and that there was nothing to fear. That all those years of feeling like you know, she had to conform to some kind of behavior that was really just in her mind, what that uh, set of things she was supposed to be doing, she realized that she could just let go of that. She could live without fear. She could live in love. And within a few days, her body healed. All of the tumors disappeared, the lesions closed. Um, and within three weeks, she was out of the hospital uh, with no cancer whatsoever. So she wow. had a profound change of conviction. And that profound change of conviction, which I, I don't recommend to anyone that you, you know, you try to have a traffic accident so you can have a near-death experience. Uh, I'm not recommending, not recommending this as a path of personal growth. But it is very illustrative that almost all near-death experiencers come back with deeply changed convictions. And they're, they're all often uh, healed of serious conditions. Not always, uh, but, but often. So, but the biggest thing that they came back with, even if they don't uh, have that kind of healing, is still there's nothing to fear. That love right. is the reality. And if I live in that reality of love, it doesn't matter what unfolds in my life. It doesn't matter if I'm, um, you know, unhealthy or healthy. The only thing that matters just being aware of that love and giving that love, just being a, an open-hearted channel for it. And that is the deepest transformation. You may not see it on a physical level, but you certainly, they certainly can tell you that they are a different person than they were um, before they had their near-death experience. So our convictions can be changed by these dramatic things and have dramatic results. But for most of us, um, it doesn't come as instantaneously or as dramatically that we have to um, do the work, as they say. I think meditation is one of the um, greatest tools for self-transformation because in the, in the stillness of meditation, when your mind settles down and you're, you're just... Um, centered in yourself, things will happen to you not, again, like I would love to have it happen to me where, you know, the, the heavens open and the angels descend and, and, and you know, sing, sing songs and, and ra raise me up. 
in in one glorious moment. I never had it. There are people who have had, you know, such amazing experiences in meditation. But most people I know who use meditation as a tool, um, who don't, you know, they're not going to a Himalayan cave to meditate uh, all day long. They live ordinary lives. Um, I've had four children. I've had a business uh, that I founded. I, I'm still working in the IT world. But that steady day after day um, experience of meditation has slowly transformed me. I often think that I would barely recognize that person who started meditating 50 years ago. Obviously, I would recognize my younger self, but I don't think I would recognize his character and right. what, he, what he feels and what he thinks. Uh, I, I am, I don't know, I'm pruning. <laughs> I'm pruning and I'm growing. I'm pruning away the things that get in the way of happiness, and I'm concentrating on the things that expand my happiness. Uh, I more and more can appreciate uh, just how simple it really is, is that I, I just need to learn to love. I just need to... Um, give love in all situations, even when um, somebody is irritating me or they're causing something to happen that I don't want to happen. Um, if I can just respond in love, even if I can't, you know, sometimes people come across sort of saccharinely sweet and loving and it's off-putting, right? You kind of think, oh, this person's kind of a phony. I don't mean giving love that way. I mean thinking of a, you know, when you're in a bind with somebody and you have differences of opinion and you, you really have to work them out, sometimes the expression of love is just to tune into that person and find a, a meeting ground. Um, let them know that you respect and honor their point of view and offer a new solution that's not yours, it's not hers, but it's a, it's a different solution, but one that they can save face and be happy about accepting where perhaps if you had just, you know, kept hammering away on your own point of view, you would never have been able to, to achieve that. So love is not... It's not Pollyanna-ish. Uh, love is intelligent. Love is uh, powerful. And tuning into that and using that in your daily life has been, for me, uh, the single most important thing I have learned to do. And I'm, you know, sometimes I still feel like I'm a beginner. Sometimes I feel like, wow, I've, I have really, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I have learned to be happy, and then I realize that well, you, you, you're you're happier, <laughs> you're a lot happier. But there's there's more to come. The, the the more to come is to not only feel and use that sense of love, but to know your oneness with God, to to commune with the intelligent joy that is creating and sustaining the entire universe. Well, very nice. And, you know. 
an, an hour can go by pretty fast. Uh, we've just got a few minutes left, and I want to make sure the audience knows how to get your book and anything else you want to share with our audience. Um, well, I do. Thank you very much for that. I do want to make sure that if people are interested in getting the book, that they know that there is a second edition out. Um, some people have gone to Amazon and typed in The Physics of God, and they have found the first edition, which will then say it's out of print. Uh, so keep digging. The search Physics of God should also bring up the uh, second edition, and just and look for that. So that's one thing. It's available in bookstores. It's available in pretty much all online outlets as well. If you want to know more about the things that uh, I'm involved with and that I do, you can go to my website, uh, which is www.physicsandgod. Not physics of God. I couldn't get that domain. <laughs> I wish I could have. But it's physicsandgod.com. And that has contact information for me, has articles, it has uh, other talks I've given like this one, and it has a, a first chapter of Physics of God if you want to you know, dip in and see what it's like. Uh, it also has links to uh, some online classes that I have, a 12-part or 11-part, I forget which, um, series on the physics of God that you can um, you can take. It's a it's a fee based um, course and more than I can explain here. But that's that's a starting point that would um, you know get you where you want to go if you want to uh, learn more about me or more about the book. Well, very nice, uh, Joseph. I want to thank you for being our guest tonight. I very much have enjoyed this conversation. Well, it's been my pleasure. Uh, you're a wonderful host, and uh, you <clears throat> drew the best out of me. We've been talking with Joseph Selby, and the topic tonight is uh, the topic of his latest book, the second edition of The Physics of God, How the Deepest Theories of Science Explain Religion and how the deepest truths of religion explain science. Um, there's a quote by uh, Nikola Tesla that I like. Uh, he did so much um, discovery with electricity in such a short period of time. One of his quotes is, the day science begins to study non-physical phenomenon, it will make more progress in one decade than in all the previous centuries of its existence. I mean, wow. Yeah, um, the, the physics of God, uh, it's done unto us as we believe. A lot of times our brain won't let go of, of the memory of what quote, reality, unquote, is. In other words, the, there's a field of miracles in front of you right now. The universe is not going to change for you to be able to perform miracles. You will change. 
you will come into harmony with the nature of miracles. And one of those uh, things that have to come into harmony is your belief system that miracles are possible. And books like this demonstrate to your mind, your ego kicking and screaming, that indeed uh, there's uh, there's physics behind the, the mechanics of miracles. So this type of a book can be a permission slip or a way for you to bring your beliefs more in harmony with where they would need to be for you to fulfill what was promised to you from the the saviors of most all religions. Um, we're out of time. I, I knew we'd have a lot to talk about. Hey, I want to thank you, the listener. You showed up for yourself. Here you are. You've listened to this episode. I appreciate it when you show up for yourself. I want to thank you. You are why we do this. We're, we've been doing this 12 years or so now. It's my pleasure as a host to bring you episodes like this tonight, to bring episodes that push the boundaries of who you think you are, because I don't think we could ever exhaust our ability to discover new aspects of our infinite divine potential. I'm your host, Les Jensen. Thank you for listening. Until next time. This has been a New Human Living radio broadcast. You can raise your own personal power with Personal Power Fundamentals Home Study Course at NewHumanLiving.com. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.